U.S. and Britain hit the Houthis in Yemen in response to their repeated attacks on Red Sea shipping. The strikes came from the air, they came from ships on the sea. At least one strike also came from a submarine. Taiwan prepares for Saturday's election. For William Lai of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, the choice facing voters is between democracy and autocracy. For Ho Yi of the main opposition party, the KNT, it's a choice between war and peace. And the annual Davos meeting is next week. On the guest list? the most important political and economic figures in the world. Hundreds of the world's most powerful chief executives. Critics say their wealth has increased while billions are getting poorer. Today is Friday, January 12th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. The United States and Britain have carried out targeted attacks on the Houthis in Yemen in response to the Houthis' repeated strikes on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Let's bring in VOA reporter Jeff Selden, who is at the Pentagon. What do we know so far? Senior U.S. officials are saying that the U.S., along with Britain, with the support of Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and Bahrain, and the support of other nations as well, carried out a series of airstrikes against targets in Houthi-controlled Yemen. They say that the strikes, while there is not a formal uh, damage assessment yet, the strikes did significant damage and had a significant impact on the ability of the Houthis to carry out further attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. U.S. officials are also telling us that the targets were selected because of the capabilities, the U.S. and Britain, from the air with fighter jets and also from the sea with warships and even with the submarine, hit targets including air defense systems, radar installations, which could help the Houthis either defend against additional attacks or locate ships to strike, as well as these strikes from the U.S. and Britain hitting actual capabilities, sites and locations used to store or launch attacks from drones, cruise missiles, and ballistic missiles. And the U.S. officials also said while they're still assessing the damage, that if the Houthis do not get the message that the international community feels that the attacks, the more than two dozen attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea are not acceptable and have to stop, the U.S. and Britain are signaling that they're ready to take additional action to make sure the message sticks. How big is the Houthi infrastructure in Yemen? The Houthi infrastructure in Yemen is is sprawling, and one of the things is that that makes it so difficult is they're constantly being supplied with a range of weapons and capabilities by Iran. The Houthis are an Iranian-backed group, so they've been getting cruise missiles, ballistic missile technology, drone technology, and they've been using all of this to launch against ships in, in, in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. That includes international commercial shipping those ships have come under attack, and the Britain, the British have said that they believe that some of the targets include British warships. The U.S. has not been willing to go that far because they say a lot of the attacks that have been launched, whether by missile or by drone, have been shot down to prevent any damage. And so, therefore, it's not always clear where the Houthis are aiming, but clearly there has been a lot of concern across 
the board from the international community about the toll this was taking on international shipping. Some major companies have begun redirecting their ships so they don't need to go through these shipping lanes that are coming under attack. And in a statement from the White House uh, following these attacks by the U.S. and Britain, the president of the United States said that these strikes are intended to show to send a clear message to the Houthis and that the United States will not hesitate to engage in additional strikes if the message is not received. This is a message that not only the United States has been sending to both Iran and the Houthis, but all of the other countries who are involved in the region as well. Right. The, the, the strikes that were carried out tonight, it was primarily carried out by U.S. assets, U.S. Uh, warplanes and, and ships and also Brit the British contributed as well, but it was done with support of several other militaries. And remember, in just the past couple of weeks, about 13 countries, including the U.S., signed on to a statement telling the Houthis, basically, this is your last warning. Stop these attacks, these reckless illegal attacks or else. In addition, there's been condemnation from the U.N. and starting in mid-December, the U.S. started, along with Britain, France, and other countries, uh, what's called Operation Prosperity, Prosperity Guardian, which has been designed to protect ships traveling through the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aden, and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. And uh, as of last week, there were about five ships, warships in the region taking part in that mission, and it had allowed for the safe passage of about 1,500 commercial ships in the area. However, the attacks have continued since those warnings. There was an attack, a massive attack that the Houthis launched on Tuesday, according to the U.S., which involved about 18 to 20 drones, cruise missiles, and ballistic missiles. There was another attack earlier on Thursday involving a missile. And so Thursday evening, the U.S. and Britain responded targeting sites that are meant to degrade the Houthis' abilities to locate and target shipping in these areas. VOA's Jeff Selden at the Pentagon. 2023 was a consequential year for human rights suppression and wartime atrocities, especially in the Horn of Africa, according to a new report by the group Human Rights Watch. In the report, published Thursday, the rights group blames regional blocs and the international community for not doing enough to protect civilians. VOA's Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo has this report. Governments in the Horn of Africa dealt with large-scale humanitarian crises in 2023. With no checks on abuses in Sudan and Ethiopia, civilians withstood the worst of atrocities committed in the name of war, the report by Human Rights Watch says. Latisha Bader is a deputy director in the Africa Division at the Rights Group. We saw blatant flouting of very basic laws of war, human rights law by governments. In Sudan, a war that broke out last April between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces has killed thousands and displaced millions of civilians, sparking a humanitarian crisis. The report says the warring parties repeatedly used heavy weapons in densely populated areas and that instead of treating this crisis as a priority, influential governments and regional bodies have pursued short-term gains at the expense of rights-driven solutions. Time and again, we saw how there was limited diplomatic willingness at the regional level, but also at the international level to really press for the sort of 
accountability which is needed to end these cycles of impunity. Several countries, including the United States and Saudi Arabia, tried to broker ceasefires in Sudan but weren't successful. In Ethiopia, after parties to the conflict in the northern part of the country signed a cessation of hostilities agreement in late 2022, which Bader says resulted in improvement in the human rights and humanitarian situations in parts of Tigray, the limited international efforts to promote meaningful accountability and an end to abuses quickly dissipated, the report says. Over the last six months in particular, we've seen um, a deteriorating rights situation and fighting in the Amhara region. Here again, we are seeing the impact on the civilian community. We've documented cases of, of, of extrajudicial killings, sexual violence, but also the, the devastation impact that this ongoing cycles of fighting is having on civilians' ability to access basic care. Fighting erupted in Tigray in late 2020 after the Tigray People's Liberation Front attacked army bases across the region. The attacks initially overwhelmed the federal military, which later mounted a counteroffensive alongside Eritrean soldiers and forces from the neighboring region of Amhara. In 2021 alone, 5.1 million Ethiopians became internally displaced, a record for the most people internally displaced in any country in any single year at the time, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. Mariama Jalou, VOA News, Nairobi. Meanwhile, in front of the United Nations' top court on Thursday, South Africa brought its case against Israel, claiming it is guilty of genocide in Gaza. VOA's Anita Powell has more. Israel's war in Gaza has a new legal front, as the International Court of Justice on Thursday heard South Africa's case against Israel on charges of genocide, as it attempts to eradicate the militant group Hamas after its stunning October 7th attack on Israeli civilians. The hearing prompted protests outside the United Nations-backed court at The Hague. South Africa launched its argument that Israel has violated the 1948 Genocide Convention and compared the situation to one closer to home. Our government has approached the International Court of Justice to prevent the unfolding genocide in Gaza. We have also asked for provisional measures which include an immediate suspension of Israel's military operations in and against Gaza. The commitment to justice and bring an end to the humanitarian atrocities in Palestine resonate deeply with the collective consciousness of the global community. The scale of these actions is reminiscent of the Rwandan genocide 30 years ago. Officially, Israel's top ally disagrees. We have said repeatedly that we believe um, these uh, allegations, this case, is unfounded uh, and that there's no basis for um, accusations of genocide against against Israel. That's not a word that ought to be thrown around lightly. But there is no consensus in Washington, with some politicians and labor leaders supporting South Africa's call for a ceasefire and accusing Israeli forces of being overzealous. A State Department official who resigned in protest filed a document with the court in support of South Africa. I'm not arguing that there should be a special standard for Israel, a higher one or a lower one. I'm simply arguing that there is a global standard and we need to hold all of our partners to it. Uh, and we need to hold ourselves to it. And in the case of Israel, there are laws that are simply being set aside, uh, overlooked, interpreted differently, or, or acted upon differently. And that does not seem to be in accordance with the U.S. approach to the international rule of law. South Africa has long supported the Palestinian cause, with former President Nelson Mandela famously saying, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. 
Analysts say this is about much more than just Israel's conduct. With a growing list of countries and entities supporting Pretoria's view over Washington's, this could have major diplomatic fallout, especially if the UN-backed court renders a judgment against Israel. It also brings into question the countries that are continuing to support Israel and provide weapons to Israel and provide intelligence to Israel and doing all these other things. So that has huge implications for U.S. relations with other countries around the world, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And it also undermines the U.S.'s leadership on human rights in the world moving forward if there's any grounds that are that are found. While arguments are expected to conclude this week, the court could take years to render a judgment. Meanwhile, the war continues, the death toll climbs, and families suffer. Anita Powell, VOA News, Washington. We're following these other stories from around the world. U.S. law enforcement officials will travel to Ecuador to assist in criminal investigations following a wave of violence blamed on drug gangs. The U.S. said in a statement that senior officials from the State Department and the U.S. military will also visit Ecuador in the coming weeks to look for ways to help. Argentina's Central Bank will put into circulation 10,000 and 20,000 peso bills later this year. Argentina's annual inflation rate is more than 211%. The bank added a 2,000 peso bill last year. The Chilean government announced on Wednesday a partnership with Google to build the first undersea fiber optic cable between South America and Asia-Pacific. Taiwan is all set for presidential elections on Saturday. They're being held under the cloud of Beijing's threat to use force to retake the island. But China's threats aren't just about warships and missiles. They are also about hard economic realities. The relationship is complicated. The Chinese mainland and Hong Kong account for about 40% of Taiwan's exports and supply about a quarter of its imports. Joining us now is David Sachs. He's a fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, where his work focuses on the relationships between China and Taiwan. Talk to me about the, the two main candidates for the presidency. So on the policy positions of the candidates, uh, they have framed it in fairly existential terms for William Lai of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. The choice facing voters is between democracy and autocracy. For Ho Yi of the main opposition party, the KMT, it's a choice between war and peace, which is framing that Beijing has endorsed and amplified. But actually, I would argue, perhaps counterintuitively, that there's a broad consensus in Taiwan on the general direction that the island should go in, which is to really solidify its ties to the West, build relations with the United States, Japan, and other democracies, and strengthen its defense to deter uh, Chinese aggression. And so on that core issue, you don't actually see much debate among the candidates. They all talk about the United States being Taiwan's most important partner, uh, about the need to pursue economic ties with the United States, Japan, and other democracies, raise defense spending, and overhaul the military, um, and things of that nature. So where you have the biggest split, which is unsurprising as well, is on cross-strait relations. 
and what role communication with Beijing should play, um, you know, going forward. And there, Hou Yui and Ko Wenjia of the Taiwan People's Party uh, believe that communication with Beijing should be a top priority to reduce misunderstandings and mistrust. While for Lai, I would argue that he places more weight in really um, building relations with the United States and, and other partners of Taiwan uh, to deter Chinese aggression. China's been very aggressive in the uh, region in the last couple of years, building the islands, uh, flying across the strait, its interactions with the Philippines. How does that impact all of this? Well, for Taiwan, I think that it has an impact where it's hard to argue that Beijing has benign intentions towards the island. And I think that that's one of the fundamental ways that the context has changed over the last eight years. I mean, with the militarization of the South China Sea, the pressure on the Philippines, the economic boycotts and embargoes on countries in the region, China's support for Russia and its war against Ukraine, it's hard to argue that you can basically trust Xi Jinping. And as long as you're having dialogue with China and lowering the temperature, you know, Beijing won't do anything um, aggressive towards Taiwan. So I think that has really changed. And I would also add, of course, China's crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong as being really a huge uh, factor in shifting this perception in Taiwan. Pushing people against any kind of concept of real relations with China, you mean? Well, on, I guess, shifting the sense that you can trust pledges that China has made. Um, And that was the real, I think, shift with Hong Kong, is that, you know, China implemented one country, two systems in Hong Kong. That was the same proposal it has made for Taiwan. And for a period of time, you could argue, well, one country, two systems was working out pretty well for Hong Kong, and it had a separate political system, and, you know, its residents had political and civil and other rights that those uh, on the mainland didn't have. But that has now lost any legitimacy in Taiwan. I mean, one country, two systems is a completely bankrupt um, formula at this point with, with, with very little support in Taiwan. And so, you know, that has really shifted, I think, perceptions um, of China. And it has made people say, well, you know, what is my life what would my life look like post-unification? And then they don't really like what they see. David Sachs with the Council on Foreign Relations. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. And finally... On Monday, more than 60 world leaders will join hundreds of business executives at the Swiss ski resort of Davos for the five-day annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Henry Ridgewell reports that some of the biggest global challenges will be on the agenda, including the impact of disinformation worldwide. Delegates gathering in Davos for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum are faced with a daunting range of global challenges. Worsening conflicts, worsening climate change, a weak global economy, 
fears over artificial intelligence, attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. In its report published Wednesday, the summit organisers said disinformation is the biggest short-term risk. Carolina Clint from Marsh McClellan Risk Consultancy is a co-author of the report. The potential impact on elections worldwide over the next two years is significant and that could lead to elected government's legitimacy being put in question. And this in turn could of course threaten democratic processes, lead to further social polarisation, riots, strikes or even intrastate violence. The summit takes place against the backdrop of two major wars in Ukraine and Gaza. Among those due in Davos are the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, Chinese premier, Li Chiang, and US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Alongside political leaders will be hundreds of the world's most powerful chief executives. Critics say their wealth has increased, while billions are getting poorer. Nabil Ahmed is from the aid agency Oxfam International. Across the world, people are feeling extraordinary hardship and at the same time you know there's a few sprinting off at the very top into the distance and some of them will be in davos and it is yes a space for dialogue for important discussions even for holding political and business leaders to account it's why organizations like oxfam um, take part but it's also not an international democratic space in which you know transparent accountable decisions are being made. Summit organisers say it's vital to bring together political and business leaders to find solutions to the world's myriad challenges. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos and more, follow VOA News on your favourite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Advancing freedom of religion has been a core objective of U.S. foreign policy since the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 was signed into law. As part of that commitment, Secretary of State Antony Blinken this year redesignated Burma, the People's Republic of China, Cuba, the DPRK, Eritrea, Iran, Nicaragua, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan as countries of particular concern. These countries have engaged in or tolerated particularly severe violations of religious freedom. This year, Azerbaijan was added to the list of special watch countries. It joins Algeria, the Central African Republic, Comoros, and Vietnam for engaging in or tolerating severe violations of religious freedom. Azerbaijan's designation comes after the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom highlighted concerns about the preservation of Christian religious sites in Nagorno-Karabakh. The takeover by Azerbaijan of the breakaway region in September led nearly the entire population of 100,000 ethnic Armenians to flee to Armenia. The commission also expressed concern over regulations on religious practice in the Muslim-majority country under President Ilham Aliyev, including passing restrictive amendments to its religion law, continuing to require and deny official registration to several religious groups, 
harassing and arresting Shia Muslim religious activists, and refusing to permit conscientious objection. Secretary Blinken also designated al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the Houthis, ISIS Sahel, ISIS West Africa, al-Qaeda affiliate Jamaat Nasser al-Islam wal-Muslimin, and the Taliban as entities of particular concern. Significant violations of religious freedom also occur in countries that are not designated, noted Secretary Blinken. He urged these governments to end attacks on members of religious minority communities and their places of worship, communal violence, and lengthy imprisonment for peaceful expression and transnational repression. He also cited calls to violence against religious communities, among other violations that occur in too many places around the world. The challenges to religious freedom across the globe are structural, systemic, and deeply entrenched, said Secretary Blinken. But with thoughtful, sustained commitment from those who are unwilling to accept hatred, intolerance, and persecution as the status quo, we will one day see a world where all people live with dignity and equality. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 